0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to 30 Ideas in 30 Minutes an opportunity to hear from 30 of British Columbia's brightest business, political, and academic leaders. I'm Kirk LaPointe, publisher and editor in chief of Business in Vancouver. We stage our event on the traditional, unceded, and ancestral land of the Coast Salish people, the Squamish, the Tsleil Waututh, and Musqueam. In the next 30 minutes, you're going to hear from our guests about ideas that have emerged with them in the challenging period of the pandemic. Expect to be inspired and engaged and enjoy the event. And thank you so much in advance to our speakers who are gonna provide one minute presentations in alphabetical order. I wanna turn the proceedings over now to two of our journalists at BIB, Tyler Orton and Haley Wooden. Take it away.
1: Thank you very much, Kirk. It's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker, Her Honor, the Honorable Janet Austin, left go- Lieutenant Governor of British Columbia. The platform is your honors for the next 60 seconds. Over to you.
2: Uh, thank you, Haley. The past few months have been fraught with challenge, but they have also brought a generous sharing of new knowledge, built trust among adversaries, and taught us patience, compassion, and humility. We've seen a renewal of our commitment to the Canadian values of diversity and inclusion, tempered by a recognition that the equal society we aspire to is not a reality for many, and that we have work to do. We better understand our mutual interdependence, the importance of acting collectively to address our challenges of economy, climate, and society. We've been given a gift, and that is the chance to look at our world with fresh eyes, to reassess our priorities. There is a new openness to big changes and new ideas, ideas based not in old ideologies, but in evidence and new knowledge, and grounded in a values-based commitment to shared prosperity. We have a chance to make our world better for all of us, let's not screw it up.
3: Thank you, Your Honor. I'd like to next welcome Faye Arjimandi. She is the founder and CEO of Mimic Technology.
4: Thank you. Thank you, Taylor. Good afternoon and thanks for the opportunity to share some insights with you. One essential solution to combat COVID-19 is contact tracing. There is a misconception that we have to sacrifice our privacy in order to do contact tracing and all current solutions fall short. Fortunately, it is possible to do some uh, contact tracing anonymously. At MIMIC, we have used our hybrid edge cloud technology that enables our smartphone with cloud server capability to build the application called Pandemic to enable anonymous contact tracing and maintain data privacy throughout the application journey. The app is ready to deploy for consumer if our government supports it. But at the same time, we have partnered with a few enterprises uh, to use the application for going back to workplace safely. Let's work together and make this happen and enable the triple A's of adoption, anonymity, and adaptability for all future solutions. Data privacy is important. Let's not screw it. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Faye. Next, we have Nicholas Badminton, lead futurist and CEO of Exponential Minds.
5: Hi there. Thanks very much for having me here. I uh, get to work with some of the, the the greatest minds in the world, governments, organizations like the United Nations and, uh, and, and trillion dollar companies. And the one idea that I really try to impart on them is that we can't be stuck in where we are today or even looking out three months or six months or 12 months into the future. And we need to look further, 5, 10, 20 years into that future. And by doing so, I like to say, hey, let's move from what is, what's happening today to what if? What if we completely reimagine how the world's working? What if we redesign the failed industrial complex? What if we uh, redistribute wealth? What if we think about interstellar travel? What if we think about a new world where everyone has equity and a place and an ability to make changes and to be heard? And this is a really powerful idea. Now, some clients take this back into their organizations. And a lot of naysayers, they say, yeah, but we can't just say, what if it's, it's too, too pie in the sky. It's too blue sky. It's the, the ideas are too wild. And I just say to my clients, just turn around and say, Hey, what if, what if we think bigger? What if you take more chances? And what if we're more creative with how we think about the future? Thank you, Nick.
3: Next up is Shaquilla Begum. She is the founder of boundless potential.
6: Thank you very much for having me here today. Um, my topic is about leadership maturity and it's kind of follows on from the last speaker, which talks about leadership maturity. 85% of the jobs that will exist in 2030 haven't even been invented yet. Organizations that prepare leaders and their employees to respond with a new organizational mindset will thrive. The future of personal development is about transforming how we think and behave. This shift in mindset is about becoming more adaptable, self-aware and collaborative. It's about leaders expanding their boundaries and engaging authentically through new habits and new ways of thinking. A leader's personal development and their work needs to be regarded as an inseparable process. In other words, leadership maturity is about becoming an interdependent thinker. Leaders that can learn and shift in the moment as they deal with ambiguity, see patterns amongst the disruption, and hold multiple stakeholders for their perspectives, Often contradictory, will thrive. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Shakila. Next, we have Mario Canseco, president of Research Co.
7: Thank you, Haley. Uh, thank you, everybody. It's been an interesting time for people who practice sociology like myself, because with everybody staying at home and not going out too often, the response rates for surveys have been astonishingly high. One of the things that we've learned over the past few months is how difficult it has been for many Canadians to be away from family, to not be able to travel, and to not be able to do the things that they used to do. If you are one of the one-third of Canadians who is not going to a gym, if you're one of the 21% of Canadians who had to say goodbye to your swimming pool, go back. It's important to keep that mental health and mental stamina going as we continue to go through this pandemic. When I first asked Canadians in March when this was going to end, most of them pointed to Easter as the moment when the pandemic would be gone. Now we know that it wasn't. We have a lot of work to do and to echo on the topic of some of the previous speakers, let's not screw it up.
3: Thank you so much, Mario. Next up is Charles Goche, or I should say Greg Davion. He is president and CEO of the Business Council of British Columbia.
8: Prior to COVID, we went to the store and the things we needed were there. We gave little thought to where vaccines and PPE were made, let alone iPhones, plexiglass, or toilet paper, or the carbon intensity needed to make them. We took for granted global manufacturing and supply chains that made this happen. And we assumed that all the inputs were carbon equal. But while we've been focused on our health and COVID disruption, the earth has continued to warm. COVID has meant that global emissions this year are going to be down significantly but largely because of 97% of the world's countries in recession, the BC and Canada facing similar reductions in emissions because we're in the biggest economic downturn in a hundred years. This means millions of jobs lost and some of them not coming back. So coming out of COVID, however, the world will ramp back up and emissions and intense competition for capital will ensue. We all know that 60% of global Greenhouse gas emissions come from six countries. And they also manufacture 60% of the things we need every day, including a vaccine when there's one available. Against this backdrop, some will argue we need to rapidly restructure the green economy of tomorrow to reduce Canada's GHGs. But proponents won't tell you that this is gonna take decades because it's very costly to replace the infrastructure we rely on. And we lack the commercially viable technology that's gonna hold the promise for a low carbon future that is reliable. Others will say we need jobs and economic recovery now, climate be damned. But not reducing global emissions today will mean higher costs and more impacts tomorrow, impacting jobs, capital, and our kids' future. But there is a third way, not uh, something that we're accustomed to talking about. It's about BC's low carbon advantage. We know BC export sectors pay the uh, highest wages in the province. They use cutting edge technology and provide the ingredients for making the things we buy, like electric vehicles. And on average, we know that energy and natural resources from BC are half the climate causing GHD intensity of competing nations. It's things like LNG and forest products, steel making coal and copper. Yet our tax and policy structures over time in BC make us 11 to 87% less competitive than our competing jur- jurisdictions globally. So, in a competitive world that's coming out of COVID, BC is a high cost jurisdiction. It means the last place that people want to invest in new projects or technology to reduce emissions, and the first place that loses a shift of a high wage job. Instead, those opportunities go to other jurisdictions that ironically have higher emissions that cause and accelerate climate change. So, BC loses the jobs, the economic opportunity, and we all watch climate change accelerate. So, our low carbon advantage plan that the Business Council put out enables us to actually advance our economy while reducing and have an outsized impact on reducing climate change. It can be found at lowcarbonadvantagebc.ca. It focuses on six areas that we've got control of to be more competitive, more innovative, and lead in ways that enable BC and Canada to play that outsized role as the low carbon supplier of choice, creating new clean technology, new firms, new infrastructure, and high paying jobs like ports of the future the ability to have a global innovation center for methane capture and carbon sequestration, the ability to be a global leader in carbon offsets, creating the offsets, verifying the offsets and selling them to the world as companies and governments around the world seek a net zero emissions target by 2050. All of this is possible for BC, but we've got to be pointed and focused and collaborative in the same way we have to manage our health to manage our economic prosperity and global climate change on behalf of British Columbians in the world. Thanks.
1: Okay, our next speaker is Sav Dollywall, board chair at Metro Vancouver and a councillor with the city of Burnaby. Over to you.
9: Well, thank you for inviting me. Metro Vancouver is a region that's recognized as one of the most livable in the world. We believe that's because of our model of regional collaboration and our commitment to sustainability. However, the pandemic has very clearly exposed the social inequities that threaten the livability of our region. So we must seize the opportunities that exist to build back better, focus on job creation through investment and critical infrastructure while reducing inequities and saving the environment. Metro's current capital plan includes investments in critical infrastructure in excess of $6 billion over the next five years. We need the province and the government of Canada to partner with us through co-investment and collaborations. These investment-worthy, ready-to-go projects will create tens of thousands of regional jobs, benefit local businesses, reduce hundreds of thousands of tons of GHGs annually. Thank you. Thank you much, uh, Saab. Uh, I was excited to get to him just
3: a moment ago. I'll, I'll go through to Charles Gauthier now. He's president and CEO of downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association.
10: Thank you, Tyler. What I've experienced during the pandemic is that technology has greatly assisted us in staying connected and for many of us employed. However, we are at risk of losing so much by remaining socially isolated. Working exclusively From home is threatening the very fabric of BC's largest employment center, notably downtown's rich and diverse restaurant, retail, and hospitality sectors, the very amenities that make downtown the preferred address to situate a business, as well as recruit and retain talent. My idea is that downtown employees work together to develop and implement a safe and thoughtful plan to phase the return of a larger percentage of their respective employees back to the office this fall. There is a path to follow. Restaurants, bars, and personal services have reopened safely. Commercial building owners have been ready for months to welcome office tenants back. With children going back to school in a few weeks and TransLink making it mandatory for its riders to wear a face mask, the time is right to do this. Let's respect COVID-19, not fear it.
1: Thank you very much, Charles. Next, we have David Jens, founder, president, chairman, and CEO of Merchant Growth.
11: Hello. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate uh, you guys bringing everyone together like this. Um, You know, throughout this pandemic, I've I've really uh, learned how resilient we are uh, by actively communicating and working together. We can solve huge problems such as dealing with this pandemic. The company I founded is called Merchant Growth and we finance small businesses. Everyone knows that small businesses have had a really tough go during this pandemic. From our vantage point in April, um, things looked really scary. It looked like a lot of businesses were going to fail. We were in sort of the shock phase of it all. Uh, But then I saw something quite incredible happen. Industry sectors worked with local and federal governments. Programs were put in place. Business owners innovated and shared best practices on how to serve customers during the pandemic. And in the next few months uh, in our business uh, as a finance provider to small businesses, we saw an incredible stabilization there were news articles early on predicting a very high percentage of small businesses failing, and it seems like we're avoiding, fortunately, those worst-case scenarios through hard work, cooperation, and ingenuity. Uh, watching all of this unfold has given me actually a, a sense of confidence in humanity. What makes us human is our ability to collaborate and solve the problems as we're doing today. Thanks for having me.
3: Thank you so much, David. Next up is Prem Gill. She's CEO of Creative BC.
12: Thank you, Tyler. Like others, I can't disagree that a lot has changed and some things have not. What has been remarkable is the speed of sectors, specifically the creative industries, to adapt and pivot to new models and structures. In terms of leadership, however, I believe honesty has never been more important. So when I say some things have not changed, my honest hope is that they will. What I'm talking about is the social justice movements and anti-racist conversations that have been elevated. I don't think this would have happened in the same way had we not all been locked down with COVID all around the world. We had to acknowledge, we had no choice but to face our structures and systems and the systemic racism within them. Acknowledging that we have been doing, that what we have been doing has not tackled anti-Indigenous, anti-Black and anti-people of color racism in this country. is It is where we need to begin. So we as leaders have an obligation to do the hard work, to reflect and respond. We have the opportunity to move from reacting in performative ways to real action. This can create change and all of us have the ability to contribute and make an impact, but it first begins with acknowledgement. Thank you.
1: Thank you Prem. Our next speaker is Arvind Gupta, a computer science professor at the University of Toronto as well as the former president of UBC.
13: Thank you, and um, it's a real honor to be here, and thanks to BIV for organizing this. I want us to think back to the brilliance of the New Deal in the 1930s. Uh, As it turns out, the brilliance was building the infrastructure for the emerging, fast-growing technology of the day, the assembly line. We've had two big economic upheavals, the 2008 economic crash and now the pandemic, and both are accelerating another big economic transformation a shift from traditional industries to digital industries. And I would argue this is a shift that's been happening for centuries, a shift from capital intensive to labor intensive industries. We all know the government is going to spend a lot of money on stimulus to help us recover from the pandemic. The question is, can we be as visionary about this spending as the New Deal? Can we build the infrastructure to support knowledge knowledge industries That infrastructure is about people. It's about our ability to rapidly reskill and redeploy people into the sectors that are trying to grow. And that also means it's about all of us. It's about believing Canadians that we can build these new industries. I also think we should be cognizant of how difficult it is going to be for government to make these kinds of investments. It's always more attractive to prop up climbing industries because that's where most people work. But if we can get this right, I think Canada will come out in fighting form in the post-pandemic world. Thank you.
3: Thank you, Arvind. Next up is Catherine Hayashi. She is president and CEO of Triumph Innovations.
14: Hi there. Uh, COVID showed me how incredibly quickly Canada can pull together and mobilize to help in a crisis. In an effort led by one of our Nobel Prize winning physicists, Triumph is part of a team in a dark matter physics collaboration that used their years of experience in gases and vacuums to produce a new COVID patient ventilator. Triumph and three similar national labs in Italy and the United States came together and brought their existing teams of designers, engineers, machinists, quality experts, coders, project managers to develop and test a new ventilator in four months compared to a normal timeline of about two years. The government of Canada worked with us, chose our project as one of four uh, projects to support with an order of 10,000 units. With this purchase order in hand, we secured parts, very scarce parts, from global manufacturers and were able to keep ahead of the U.S. and other countries in the ventilator race. In a crisis, we can call upon our national labs to step up and work together and bring their brilliant minds and deep capabilities when they are needed the most. Thanks.
1: Thanks, Catherine. Anita Huberman is the president and CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. Anita, over to you.
15: What the Surrey Board of Trade has learned through the pandemic is that success is a journey, not a destination. We need to listen to our customers more closely than ever before and adapt in real time to their rapidly evolving needs. Businesses and organizations will adapt and need to adapt to digital across their operations and transform for survival and resilience. But we must find different ways to build emotional connections with our customers by phone or through physical distancing meetings to make that connection. And what I've learned is that customers want to do business with you when your values are articulate and implemented with a purpose other than profit. Reimagine your business, ladies and gentlemen. Have an innovation hub or lab for your business and be free to test new ways of doing things. Risk can't be spoken about unless you think about opportunities. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much, Anita. Next up is Paul Larock. He is president and CEO of Arts Umbrella.
16: Thank you. I have been reminded during these past six months of the critically important role that art plays in our society. Throughout the arts and culture sector, we are being challenged like never before, but the indomitable artistic spirit continues to push forward and innovate in ways that inspire and move me. At Arts Umbrella during the lockdown, our team found a way to bring creativity and inspiration to vulnerable children by delivering hundreds of art kits filled with high quality supplies and at home project ideas. Our dance students created a series of films that brought their individual performances in their living rooms and backyards into a single choreographic production and we presented it in a safe outdoor public screening. And this fall, we will be leasing an entire floor of a covered parking garage to deliver musical theater classes that will provide the space and open air to be safe. Art persists through great challenges and I feel privileged to be a part of this, thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Paul. Next, we have Greg Malpass, founder and CEO of Traction On Demand.
17: Hello. Thank you so much for hosting this event. Um, I would say I'll just start with just because it made sense doesn't mean it makes sense. You know, throughout this pandemic, I think all of us hopefully would agree that our role as leaders is fundamentally shifted. Our employees look to us uh, as, as their representatives and questions that we were never never at the beginning of understanding or, or being ready or prepared to answer or being asked. I, as a CEO, has been asked to be uh, you know, a, a spokesperson for our position uh, around Black Lives Matter and the, and the injustice. And to be perfectly honest, I was going through the exact same experience as my employees, realizing that much of what we've done hadn't really been thought through properly. So I think coming through this, um, there's a new role new role of a CEO. I think that we picked up a responsibility that um, that, should, that we should all be very proud of and very excited about. It's also terrifying. Um, I think we've all been given the permission to change and to change things that and structures that are just incorrect and, and be proactive around undoing them. Uh, and our, I think our people, the resilience of our people has really shown through their openness to change. And, and maybe maybe we, we made some false assumptions around how much change the human spirit can truly endure. I think out of this, the way we organize ourselves from attraction perspective, uh, location-wise, is going to fundamentally change. Our offices are going to go to where our people are, not to central hubs. When it comes to our intentions uh, as an organization, we're going to very, very clearly state how we're going to play a fundamental measured role in playing a a positive change, playing towards positive change in the world. We're going to express our B Corp values. We've been a B Corp for for many years Um, and and continue to really grow greater trust uh, with with our teams to to hopefully continue to earn a a role as, as being a representative of them as a whole.
3: Thank you so much Greg. Uh, next up is Lori Mathis and she is President and CEO of Chartered Professional Accountants of British Columbia.
18: Thank you for having me. The phrase trust but verify was famously used by Ronald Reagan. Throughout the pandemic we have seen impressive and effective demonstrations of trust. Trust in our public health officials and trust in our workforces as we have trusted our employees to work very successfully remotely. Now, as we consider how to lead going forward, we need to continue to trust and to build trust, but we also need to incorporate appropriate verifications to prove to ourselves and to our employees that trust is well-placed. The act of verifying not only helps to build trust for the employee, but the knowledge that trust but verify is being applied will assure employees that employers are looking for substance and that employees who perform Will be treated fairly. Trust but verify does not show a lack of confidence; rather, it is a very important leadership tool that will only serve to further foster trust.
1: Thank you, Laurie. Next, we have Mark Masongsong, the co-founder and CEO of Urban Logic.
19: Hi, everyone. At Urban Logic, we develop data analytics and artificial intelligence to support government planning. Our big lesson has been the nature of inertia in how society organizes itself. The world likes to talk about the benefits of innovation, but when it comes to our governments, we often demand perfection and punish mistakes. You can't have it both ways. Risk and failure are the price of innovation and improvement. Decade after decade after decade, public servants are groomed in a culture of fear of not following the same process, that if they try something new and it doesn't work, it will lead to a public scandal. COVID introduced a crisis mode of governing where status quo processes just could not work and governments responded with creativity and innovation. Public servants are the same people they've always been, but their environment has changed. The public has signaled that society has the patience for officials to try new things. As society returns to normal, one of the things we should hold on to is the spark of government in agility and innovation. Government is a force for good and public servants have always had the ability to to try creative new things. We just needed to give them permission with the understanding that innovation requires risk-taking.
3: Thank you so much, Mark. Next up is Gordon McCauley. He is president and CEO of Admari Bioinnovation.
20: Thank you. I think that the pandemic has taught us a lot. It's taught us about how we support each other, about our weaknesses as a society, and our strengths as a society. And without taking away for a moment from the critical and important discussion we need to have and the action we need to have about fairness, equality, and opportunity. I'd like to talk for a minute about our strengths as a society. The life sciences research capacity in Canada is extraordinary. At 0.5% of the world's population, Canada generates 5% of its innovative output. Within days of the World Health Organization declaring a pandemic, we reached out to our academic and industrial colleagues across the country and identified 130 programs, vaccines, therapeutics, biomanufacturing, diagnostics, tools, all with significant potential. It's just a wonderful demonstration of the capacity of research in Canada to respond to specific needs. We need to celebrate that innovation and that aspiration. So absolutely, let's have a dialogue, an important dialogue and action around our weaknesses. But let's also focus on the strengths because our capacity to do high potential, high value, uh, high commercializable research is extraordinary and will be central to Canada's economic recovery and our human health. Thank
1: you. Thank you very much, Gordon. Our next speaker is Sabel Negres, president, CEO, and co-founder of webnames.ca.
21: Hi everyone, and it's an honor to be here today. Um, Amaze every customer with exceptional service. That's been webnames number one core value for 20 years, but during COVID-19, we're doubling down on customer experience. In talking with customers, we realized business owners were experiencing lots of anxiety and uncertainty. Um, So rather than prioritize and measure call efficiency, we empowered our team to take the time needed not only to resolve technical issues, but to show empathy and take extra care to offer words of encouragement. We're also doing what we can for community in our own way to help keep the economic engine of our country going. We recognize that small businesses, women, indigenous and youth have been particularly hard hit by COVID. So to do our part, we launch a new program, an easy one-page website with everything included to help brick and mortar businesses or new startup ideas get a fast online presence. And we're waiving first year fees for these hearted groups, sharing the initiative through small business, um, women and indigenous, indigenous business associations and UBC students as well, with more university partnerships to come. Thank you.
3: Thank you much, Savelle. Uh, Next up is Brian Buggy. He is a director of the Vancouver Economic Commission.
22: Thanks everyone. I believe like so many that the tragedy of the COVID-19 crisis has opened up a once in a lifetime opportunity to do a clean reset. And what I've observed over the past six months is this incredible level of collaboration and support in our community. So let's leverage this unprecedented time to get ready for the next crisis that we all know is coming the negative impacts of from climate change we can't afford to get complacent after the pandemic passes instead we need to create a new plan a clean reset an economy that accounts for our planetary boundaries and creates shared prosperity that grows over time as a result of lowering our emissions by rapidly transitioning to a renewable and renewable energy and eliminating waste so together let's establish a world-class center of excellence on the low-carbon circular economy right here in Metro Vancouver. This is a center designed to help Vancouver-based organizations adapt to the new realities of climate change, as well as identify new economic and business opportunities to pursue. This is a center where business, civil society, and government can come together to share best practices, to innovate, to showcase, to learn how to pivot to become more resilient, and to implement change, change much faster. A place to discuss policy and enabling legislation. A place to collaborate to solve the biggest challenges and create unlikely alliances. A place where you're inspired to take action and motivated to lead and cultivate new green ventures. So ultimately, this can become a place to accelerate, and that's the key word, the transition to a cleaner economy and keep Vancouver competitive. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Brian. Next, we have the founder and CEO of Now of Work, Rocky Ozaki.
23: Thank you. So it, it took a pandemic to awaken organizations uh, who were previously uh, operating with this industrial age mindset. And sure enough, even the most legacy industries started to adopt remote working and flexible work and made decisions faster with less meetings, accelerated their digital transformations But sadly, I think that the honeymoon is over. These companies who say that they're agile and they're innovative now, they have yet to prove that they can sustain or scale the modern workplace. And so my fear is that the um, old paradigm of work will linger on as companies revert back to their old dysfunctional habits. And that's a scary proposition. As leading companies around the world uh, continue to redefine the workplace and people and consumers Reevaluate what's most important in their lives. And so for me, actually, in the last three months, I've seen too many companies and people start to lose that sense of urgency. And instead, I think we need to continue to challenge our old assumptions so that we can truly thrive in this next normal. The future work is now, but how many companies are truly
3: ready? Thank you, Rocky. Next up is Andrew Reed. He is founder and CEO of Rival Technologies.
24: Thanks, Tyler, and great to see so many familiar faces on Zoom today. This has uh, been very interesting to listen into. So when COVID-19 started, my company Rival created a mobile community of 3,000 Americans and Canadians to help our clients keep up with the shifting consumer sentiments and behaviors. And through that research, we've learned some interesting things. We're learning about routines, that are emerging. Uh, We found out that 36% of consumers told us that they're grocery shopping online more, which is no surprise. 52% are telling us that their eating habits have changed. Um, One stat I thought was really interesting is that many of these changes are gonna be permanent. Uh, It was interesting to hear that 89% of the people we've been talking to plan to stick to the new behaviors they've recently picked up. So the consumer landscape is more dynamic and unpredictable than ever before. And as entrepreneurs and business leaders, we need to question the assumptions we have. And I think everyone needs to look at creating new playbooks for this new normal and be continuously engaging with your customers, with your, custom, with your employees, with your non-customers, and even with, um, with, with your competitors to try and understand how we can all remain relevant in this new world.
3: Thanks.
1: Thanks, Andrew. Next, we have Barry Ravella, Senior Vice President and Chief Strategy and Information Officer at Pacific Blue Cross.
24: Hi uh, Haley, thanks for uh, having me, and it's, on, it's an honor to be here with everyone. What's one big idea I learned from the pandemic? Organizational no's can become yeses overnight. When our staff at Pacific Blue Cross felt their health, well-being, and financial security was at risk, we were able to change our organization forever. In a culture that traditionally did not work from home, we moved 800 people home in 10 days. Through creativity, adaptability, and technology available to us today, we created a platform for change. The employees wanted it, we had a solution, and the engagement was ubiquitous. What is the learning going forward? Compelling events matter when we try to accomplish something collectively. But more important, when you hear no, realize it can become yes overnight.
3: Perfect, thank you so much for that Barry. Next up, uh, we have Mike Schilling. He is president and CEO of Community Savings Credit Union. Thank you, Tyler. Okay, so
25: none of us have done this before. None of us have led through a crisis like this, and and none of us have a playbook which we can open every morning, which make our decisions for us. Uh, So how do we do it? Um, As CEO of Community Savings, that was the question before me in March and throughout this crisis. And really, the, the truth that's revealed itself to me in 2020 is that choosing the right thing to do actually isn't that difficult at all. It isn't difficult when your organisation is ground in a clear and inviolable purpose and when you as a leader and your team are personally aligned to that purpose. It's not difficult at all. So whereas my team have worked miracles, they've worked extremely hard to support our members throughout this crisis, as a leader – Nothing could be simpler than choosing to pay back, choosing to help people and choosing to support people who support you. So I'm fortunate at community savings because that's basically my job description. Um, so thank you, back to you guys.
1: Thank you very much, Mike. Our next speaker is Hamid Shabazi, founder and CEO of Well Health Technologies.
26: Thanks, Haley. Uh, thanks everyone. Uh, it's really inspiring to hear everyone's thoughts from the pandemic. As for me, I run a company called Well Health, we're BC's largest owner operator of medical clinics and one of the province's largest providers and the nation's largest providers of practice management software for healthcare providers. As you can imagine, the pandemic had substantial effects on our business and community and more importantly on those frontline workers who are trying to be there for the public. In fact, we realized very quickly that our role in this pandemic would be one where we would create business continuity solutions for patients and their care providers. This caused us to dramatically accelerate our plans to stand up our telehealth program and expanding it beyond its original scope, um, which uh, uh, which, which required a bunch of very important decisions that our team labored on. Um, If we wanted to be relevant and helpful, we needed to act quickly and decisively. And we made decisions in a two- to three-day period that normally would have taken us maybe up to a year. As you can imagine, those decisions had far-reaching implications given the the field of healthcare. So our team vigorously debated these decisions. And I can tell you what allowed us to be successful is the strength and resilience of our team, but also the premise that we agreed to disagree in some cases. Jeff Bezos calls this the premise of disagree and commit. In some cases, we disagreed and committed and demonstrated the importance of trusting each other, even through disagreements. This takes a lot of emotional maturity and leadership from people at all levels, and it isn't always easy, but we're very proud that we were able to disagree and commit as results have been very encouraging so far. Thank you.
3: Excellent, thank you, Ahmed. Next up, we have Jeremy Shaki. He is co-founder and CEO of Lighthouse Labs.
27: Hi, and an honor to be here. Thank you so much and such wonderful ideas all around. Um, In our experience with COVID kind of moving on, the growth in online learning has been substantial. And as individuals try to professionally grow and corporations pour investment into employee training, the signaling and credentials and even name brands, they're going online. There's been a real question in terms of quality of education and how people know. We can all list the skills we gain on our resume, and we can talk about the learning outcomes of what we could do with those skills, but we're really struggling to connect that to our actual work, the salary growth, the capabilities. And on the other side, companies are struggling with how to connect it to productivity and the impact on corporate ROI. It's extremely subjective at best. And so what we're seeing a large rise in is the evaluation and assessment of our skill sets through the work we actually do within companies, leaving the learning outcomes alone and the controlled environments of schools. We're looking at how skills are actually properly being evaluated with the work people are actually doing realizing that it's not access to information, nor even the absorption of that information that is the biggest dilemma, but rather how it's used in the workplace to improve that productivity and have an honest, objective conversation about the growth of individuals and their impact on the company around them. It's also holding a lot of educational institutions accountable in very different ways. We see a huge growth in the evaluation and assessment industry, and I think it couldn't come fast enough.
1: Thanks, Jeremy. Ali Tarani is next. He is the president and CEO at ZymeWorks.
28: Hi, everyone. It is a pleasure to be here. Uh, ZymeWorks is focused on the research and development of therapeutics for cancer. As the CEO of ZymeWorks, I want cancer to become a thing of the past. But as a father of two kids, a three-year-old and a five-year-old, I've been thinking about the upcoming school year. COVID has showcased the importance and the need for frontline workers and their role in our future. Now, as we get ready to roll into September and getting our kids ready to go back to school, I believe we need to add teachers to the list of frontline workers. Teachers shape the future through our kids, and I believe their compensation should reflect their role and importance in our society and as frontline workers and as a staple for everything that becomes the future. I propose increasing their compensation by considering the following. Lowering their employment tax burden, lowering the amount they need to pay into CPP and EI, but retaining maximum benefit. Perhaps thinking about lowering their home, car, transit tax burdens. Maybe forgiving their student loans for new teachers. And of course, wherever something has to go up, something has to be used to offset. So maybe offset these by increasing tax on super luxury items, such as cars over $100,000 or homes over $5 million and increasing tax on sugar and tobacco. I am certain you will all agree with me that teachers are a lot more important than tobacco, sugary drinks or super expensive luxury items. Now. I also propose that after a three year period, we use the same template or the same mechanism to perhaps roll the same thing for nurses and other frontline workers. We've celebrated them, we've showed them a lot of love. Now let's really look at their compensation and improve their lives as well. Thank you.
3: Excellent, thank you, Ali. Next up, we have Ray Walia. He is co-founder and CEO of Launch Academy. Hi, everyone. It, back in March, when the realities of COVID
29: really started to sink in, uh, we realized that we need to prioritize not only the health of our teams, but uh, but the mental wellness of them as well. But it also became very apparent that COVID affects everybody differently and their families differently. And so I, as a leader, was struggling to figure out how can I help my team? But one thing came very evident that what I could give them is time. And so with one of my companies, what we've been doing since uh, May is experimenting with a four-day work week. Now, a four-day work week isn't a solution for everybody. It's not realistic for some companies, but for now, as our company is uh, working from home, it has become a very welcome solution for our team to give them extra time to deal with uh, just mental stress, but also the other aspects of COVID, dealing, working with their parents and helping them out or volunteering in different areas. And uh, it, it's really become a welcome solution. Now, what that looks like once we get back into the office, we don't know, but for now, in the time being, it has been a very um, uh, positive solution for us uh, during this pandemic.
1: Thanks, Ray. Next, we have Denise Williams, CEO of the First Nations Technology Council. Thanks, Haley. And
30: and so nice to see so many friends here virtually on Zoom. Quick fact about Zoom. Zoom technology shares are currently sitting somewhere around $282.28. And this is roughly 79% higher than just one year ago. It's expected that stock in tech companies that keep us connected and business moving through these uncertain times will surge, turn over 7 to 10 times their profitability over the next five years. There's no Question why? The integration of connected technologies rapidly expanding with billions, if not trillions of dollars spilling into this market. You're about to experience a plethora of tools and integrations built to help you stay healthy and happy and safe and connected through a socially distanced world. Here's the problem. In Canada, we have not yet moved on universal access to the internet. This market-driven model in the telecommunication space has resulted in 75% of First Nations communities in BC priced out. So while the rest of the world grabs at every new tech tool possible and shares skyrocket, our kids can't go to school Healthcare is compromised, economic development and growth have been slowed. Mental health cases, overdose and domestic violence rates have risen with a majority of our people unable to access services because this requires Internet and mobile connection. I want to see a country committed to a of access and no more social distancing from the topic of Indigenous people and our lack of access to basic service of Internet connectivity. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much, Denise. That was excellent. Uh, next up, we have the Honorable Jody wilson Rebold. She is a member of Parliament for Vancouver Granville.
31: Thank you. I was raised to seek balance, where everyone in a community has a role to play. Rooted in these teachings is the importance of our interconnectedness, our responsibility to one another, and the natural world. Our collective way of being, indeed our common. When humanity is being tested as we respond to COVID-19. We're in a learning moment. More than ever, I've been thinking about what it would be like to have a society where everyone is truly supported. There's a reason why some groups have been hit harder than others, the vulnerable and marginalized. And if we are able to do something about it during a pandemic, then why not permanently? Let us address inequalities with action, not words, with a plan, to restart a greater economy, one that values all work, one that measures our social well being and success, and not just based on GDP. For our welfare is affected by many factors mental well being, cultural resilience, and very importantly, environmental health. Planning based on what we truly value, maximizing our human potential, is how our society will be transformed. This is core to the teachings of my people, indigenous peoples, and how we have survived for millennia. Thank you.
0: Well, thanks so much. I want to thank again our speakers for their contributions today. It was immensely impressive. I hear so many ideas about leadership and about the opportunities for change, uh, about the importance of it, the urgency for change, and of course about optimism, which is all too absent at times like these in the last few months. I want to thank our speakers, of course, uh, for delivering so many of these great insights. I know uh, you're all very busy. I want to pay special tribute to our Lieutenant Governor Janet Austin uh, for agreeing to join us. She has, of course, been an unflinching supporter of the economy, of our business community and uh, of responsible media in this province. It's been great to have her. And I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge someone who took time from his birthday today, Arvind Gupta. Uh, Thanks so much, Arvind. Uh, Thanks to Haley and Tyler for their moderation of the event. Uh, and to Albert Van Sanford for his technical organization of a very smooth event and complexity and all of this. I hope everyone at home has, in uh, their places of work, have enjoyed the experience. The recording of the event is, of course, going to be available at bib.com shortly, and we'll be sending around clips of the presentations via social media in the days ahead. Please let us know what you thought of the event, uh, what you might like to see from us, and join us again when we next stage a session of Insights. I'm Kirk Lapointe publisher and editor-in-chief of Business in Vancouver. On behalf of our publication, we're really proud and privileged to have these many great connections in our community. Thank you for watching today, we'll see you
23: again.